the rise of the employee voice where employees are saying to their corporate leaders, come on, wake up, you know, we want you to have a viewpoint or we want you to have an opinion on social and political issues. And that pressure is in organisations which are large globals, but it's in organisations which are tiny micro businesses as well. So I think that's something which we've definitely seen ramped up in the last few years in particular. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this latest edition of Talking Recruitment, the podcast from the Recruitment and Employment Confederation. So you eagerly listeners will realise that I am Kate Shoesmith. I'm Deputy Chief Executive at the REC, and I'm taking the reins for today's podcast because we have Neil out fighting the good fight. So I'm going to be in the hot seat for the podcast for today. We're in the middle of February. And those old adages about how January takes an age to complete and then the rest of the year seems to fly by are really ringing true for me because it's been such a busy time of late. Um, There's been particular interest in labour market performance and the role of recruitment in that because of its impact on the economy overall. We've had a flurry of data sets out over the last few days on GDP, inflation and employment. And it's fair to say that there's been a lot of attention paid to how the UK is in was in a technical recession towards the um, end of 2023 and what this means overall for how the labour market is performing. Um, REC, we've been front and centre in the debates. There's been a lot of media coverage of REC's own data. The recent editions of Report on Jobs and Labour Market Tracker are just out. And what they tell us is what many recruiters know to be true already, is that yes, 2023 was tough, particularly in the middle of the part of the year. But 2024, it started off well um, and it's steady as we go. So it's not perhaps the the stellar performance of the, the previous years as we came out of the pandemic. And there is that element of climate caution paying it, playing into the overall economic outlook. Um, but in many sectors, employers are looking to hire and that, um, that client activity is back. And that perhaps sets the scene for today's talking recruitment conversation. I'm delighted to be joined by Dan Robertson, who is the MD of Fairer Consulting and the Global Head of EDI Advisory Services at Hayes International. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Okay, good afternoon and uh, great to be with you, actually. Looking forward to the conversation. Well, I'm really pleased you can be here, particularly as you've been a bit of a global jet setter of late and you fit this in. So so thank you. And perhaps just to to start us off, could you um, explain a bit about Fairer Consulting and the work you do for those that haven't come across you before? Yeah, no, great. So so first of all, I guess in terms of a broad introduction, I've worked in the world of uh, EDNI for about 20 odd years. And so I started my career I suppose before it was a it was a profession actually. It was one of those things, Kate, where you know you'd go to a dinner party and people would say, "Hey, Dan, what do you do?" And I say, "I work in diversity." And you get strange looks, as in, well, "What's that?" I'm pleased to say we don't get that anymore. But so you've seen a kind of a history, and so the history of that for me is actually working in uh, in policy actually with government on things like race equity and the rest of it. But really, for the last fifteen or so years, I've worked with global corporates on concepts like inclusive leadership how do we embed 
EDNI and corporate structures, corporate thinking and the rest of it. And I've set up a number of organizations along the way. So previously, I set up an organization called uh, Vasida Consulting, uh, which was acquired by Hayes uh, last year. And we've gone for a bit of a reflection in terms of our values and mission and where do we want to go. So we've effectively rebranded to now Fairer Consulting. And Fairer is an acronym. And so Fairer stands for uh, fairness, uh, accessibility, inclusion, respect, equity, and representation. And those six six things um, effectively define our mission and what we want to be doing uh, in that corporate space. It's brilliant. And, and I can only imagine how much things have changed in those 20 years. Um, and, and like you say, it must feel like there's been a bit of a rapid transition over the last couple of years. Is that fair to say? Because I suppose we we are now in a situation where you don't have to go very far or very fast to find people talking about EDNI generally. Um, but is it necessarily in the right way, would you say? And what do you think people should be focusing on? So, um, on your website, I saw that you'd written a really nice blog about the five trends in EDI that we might expect to see in 2024. What's the sort of transition you've seen over time um, and, and what things should people be looking out for now? Yeah, yeah. Good question. Quite a big question there, Kate, as well. But great. It's huge, isn't it? Huge. <laughs> huge. But uh, look, I think I think a couple of things to start with is it, it has definitely changed, actually. And I think, you know, back in the day, we would talk about those principles of diversity, inclusion and equity. Um, and I think what's happened over the last few years, to your point, is I think there's probably a couple of what I would consider really genuine kind of like watershed moments, if you like, in the history of EDI. I think in the UK, one of them was uh, the murder of Stephen Lawrence. So if any of us are old enough to remember that, uh, you know, Stephen Lawrence was, was, was murdered and the Metropolitan Police did an investigation into that. And that was deemed to be um well incorrect in terms of how they did it and somebody called sir william mcpherson um actually investigated the police's investigation and he defined the metropolitan police at that point as being institutionally racist and that completely reshaped the whole landscape of the conversation in fact it even reshaped the legal framework we amended um a piece of legislation um that we'd had in the uk since the 1970s um, and that merged into what we now have in terms of the uh, Equality Act. But I think in more recent times, one of the things that I do think genuinely has been a bit of a watershed moment was the murder of George Floyd. And even though George Floyd was a, was a race issue and a US issue, actually what we've seen is the effects of that globally. And we see that quite localised in the UK as well. And one of the big shifts that I've seen is, a, well, two two big things, actually. One is... I think that historically, at the corporate leadership level, leaders would generally stay silent on what we might call, you know, social or political issues. Um, you know, we'd often see corporate leaders commenting on, say, environmental concerns and we'd have those sorts of things in, you know, annual reports and that kind of thing. But I think the murder of George Floyd has almost sparked a kind of, if you like, a, a bit of a rise of the employee voice where, you know, Employees are saying to their corporate leaders, you know, come on, wake up. You know, we want you to have a viewpoint or we want you to have an opinion on social and political issues. 
And that pressure is is in organizations which are large globals, but it's in organizations which are tiny micro businesses as well. So I think that's something which we've definitely seen ramped up in the last few years in particular. But also, I think there is this growing what we might call identity politics, if you like. So we, we're we're starting to see a bit of a a clash of ideas or a clash of viewpoints. Um, and I do think that's facilitated particularly by social media and the rest of it. So the rise of either the extreme right is one example of that. And we see that, you know, it's just in the US and we see that in the US where in states like Florida, they, they're changing the constitution to um, make it illegal to um, even have drag queens, you know, uh, talking schools and all sorts of things going on there. And there's all sorts of legal frameworks changing across Europe and the UK. So I think we're in an interesting time. And so that puts a spotlight on conversations about belonging, psychological safety and all of that stuff, which we probably need to untangle and tease out. So I think in some ways the conversation, even though we're doing more activities, getting a bit more complex and even slightly messy in in, in some ways. And, and that can lead to an element of fear I would say so you're what you're pointing to and and both of those events that you mentioned Stephen at very different times in my life Stephen Lawrence's murder was uh, profoundly affecting on me because I grew up in the same area as he did um, right. and and down the road and 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 the and the murder of George Floyd in a totally different way different context I was at work we were part of during the pandemic it it was such a awful display of brutality it felt and and there was a point in time where as a business we we should reflect that and what is our stance on that and what do we feel about that and we were asked to do that by our staff and so we did but it's what you're pointing to is that these things can be quite controversial now they're deeply politicized and there could be a temptation as a business to say nothing at all. And how do you overcome that? Because when there is that that tension between viewpoints and that politicization of the viewpoints, how, how do you take a stand as a business? Should you take a stand as a business? Yeah, good question. I think I think what businesses need to do as a starting point is probably just reflect back on their their values. So most most businesses, large or small, will have a set of values. And those values are in some shape or form aligned to principles of inclusion for everybody. So I actually think now the kind of genie's out of the box, if you like, I, I actually don't think it's possible for leaders not to have a voice. I think I think since the George Floyd thing, we've seen lots of uh, examples of the rise of what we call, say, employee activism. And we've seen it in you know, Google and Microsoft and lots of other organisations where employees are saying to their corporate leaders, you've got to start aligning your behaviours and your decision making to our stated values and to the things that we demand as employees. And so I think that I don't think we can close that window anymore. So if that is the case, then I, I guess the question is, where are the boundaries to that? And, and for me, the boundary would probably be, and this is this is not necessarily perfect, but I think the boundaries are that leaders don't necessarily need to take a political perspective. So, for example, we wouldn't expect corporate leaders to align to a political party or a political view. 
but I think they can take a bigger opportunity to align to bigger principles such as, you know, the notion of anti-discrimination or the notion of fairness and opportunities for everyone. And that's broad enough for leaders to have a viewpoint on um, and a commentary on without um, crossing a line of being seen as too political, if you like. Um, I think one of the challenges around that is around um, organisational leaders having an understanding of where this conversation is at. Because, you know, I, I talk to corporate leaders all the time, pretty much every day, and they say to me, Dan, you know, I'm really into this DNI thing. You know, it's really important to me as a human being, but also as a leader. And I, I want to contribute to the debate, if you like. But one of your points, Kate, earlier was about, I suppose, what we might call psychological safety and do we feel safe to have that conversation? And I do feel that we are starting to lose the ability to make mistakes and the ability to be curious and learn and grow because if you're not an expert on a particular topic you know you might be a bit clunky in your language or you might be a bit kind of uh, you know clunky in how you post something and I think the issue with modern society and particularly around social media is it's easy for for as others who are not perfect in their you know current thinking or the rest of it so my plea to uh, my plea to uh, even DNI professionals, actually, as well as others, is we need to start allowing each other to be curious, to make mistakes, and learn and grow in this space. And if we do that, then we can build more insight and confidence in the rest of it. That that is so interesting. It is very valuable because um, it links together two parts for me. Um, one is that we we all learn particularly over the course of the pandemic how important it was to be together even though we were apart and that we needed to facilitate those conversations and really sought to understand each other and the um the dynamics that you had no clue how other people were feeling or dealing with the pandemic and everybody's situation was different and we and and one of the things we all were leaning towards was that sense of treating each other with respect as always but but kindness in particular and building that psychological safety and and you're putting that across the EDI um uh perspective as well where, where that really matters and and I've learned something of this recently because uh, one of the things that I do as part of my work with the REC is um I'm part of the recruitment industry disability initiative and in a conversation with uh, two leads from from that organisation, I, I specifically was asking them about how do I ask questions without causing offence? Hmm. Because actually part of the recruitment process, you will want to know how to provide access, uh, equal access opportunities. You want to ensure that you make any adjustments that may be necessarily for work finding, but also for um, when you enter work. But I don't want to cause offence by asking the wrong question in the wrong way. Um, and I was really reassured by the answers was there's nothing wrong with just asking very open questions. And that seems to be where you're leading towards as well, is that allowing the conversation to happen is more important than having to have all of the answers. Would you say that's where you are, Dan? Yeah, I, I do, actually. I think I think that, you know, I think that we, um, I think, you know, there's a distinction between 
you know, positive intent and, you know, all the motivations. And I think that, you know, having a bit of space effectively to be curious and to be genuine and to find out about other people, you know, that element of curiosity um, actually makes us more competent. So, you know, curiosity gives us knowledge. So, you know, if you take that as an example, so um, if, if somebody who's going through a recruitment uh, process, you know, identifies that they've got a particular impairment, you know, the natural question obviously is, you know, can you tell me what that is so that I can make that reasonable judgment and effectively help out? So having that, can you tell me what that is question, um, is something that's important for us as leaders or as recruiters because it makes our decision making more inclusive and most people to be honest wouldn't be offended by that i think the issue at the moment is most people are afraid to even go there um and so actually what we're finding is is that this lack of psychological safety if you like is almost preventing us from moving from good intention into meaningful action um so I think that is a really that's something that I guess we're all going to have to tease out and and almost be a bit, I suppose, braver and not allow some of the noise that you see on social media and things like that to get in our way of asking those open questions and being curious and all of that. Because I do think it's really problematic at the moment, actually. And I, I suppose my my big concern is around if we're not careful, it's going to have the kind of... Um, you know, these unintended consequences where we just stop asking the basic questions and then that's, you know, going to cause all sorts of problems, actually. So so, so I think you're right, Kate, actually. I think I think that's something that we might all need to focus down on a bit more. So this takes us, and you've done it really well, is it takes us into the specifics around um, uh, what recruiters are facing, how, how this works in recruitment is a people business. Um, and everything you're saying to me is pointed towards the culture that you're creating, but also the culture that's created in the service that you provide. But there is a there is a fundamental tension and a problem that I hear time and time again. And that's that whenever it comes to um, the the facilitation of um, the the people stuff in a business, um, so the recruitment, the HR piece, the EDNI piece. First of all, there's a sense of, well, do those things align at all, um, and should they, or are they all distinct functions? But more importantly, each and every part there is often struggling to get their voice heard at the top table within an organisation. So it could be that, yes, there is a, a well-developed um, HR function. It could be that recruitment services are brought into the organisation via um, a recruitment business, a consultancy service, whatever it may be. But they're not got a consistent place at the top table. Do you think it should be there? Do you think ED and I should be there? And, and if so, who should be leading it? Mm, really good question, actually. Um, I might slightly contradict myself, Kate, actually. So my uh, my first response is absolutely yes. Um, do, do we need to have the DNI? You know, because actually the top table can, can constantly expand, right? And so so the obvious response from somebody like me who is considered a DNI expert, for want of a better term, you might think that I'd say yes, and my instinct is yes, but but not necessarily. I think actually what we need is culture at the top table 
And that's distinct from the HR function, because the HR function, even though there's responsibilities for organizational culture within the HR world, I would tend to separate it out and have HR as the operational actions, if you like, uh, at the top table and ensuring that, you know, we've got things like bias, which is free from recruitment processes or, you know, performance review processes and, and HR really leading on the strategic conversation around people management issues. But I think some side alignment to, well, what is the culture? What are our people thinking and feeling? How do we represent ideas of belonging and psychological safety and diversity at the top table? And while there's an automatic connection to HR, I think it can get consumed within HR and then lose its voice. So I think having, you know, chief culture officers at the top table is something which I would advocate for. The only other thing that I would say, though, is that whilst leadership and having that voice at the top table is obviously critical, um, with a, probably a slightly different podcast, Kate, but when we look at the history of organisation and social change, you know, change actually very, really starts at the top. Change pretty much always starts at the bottom and moves upwards. Um, as I say, that's probably a different podcast. But the reason I make that point is because actually what we need is EDNI advocates across and up and down our organizational structure. So, you know, while yes, we should have it at the top table, you know, we should have I don't know, you know, advocates at uh, mid, mid-management level, in uh, team level, uh, but also, I think, integrated through different structures. I mean, if you take um, uh, recruitment as an example, actually, and uh, a side issue like procurement, you know, we've got a massive opportunity to integrate EDI through procurement processes or through our recruitment processes. And so I'd probably like to see a bit of a a scattering in a strategic way of EDNI through the organization and then having different checkpoints depending on uh, people's different areas of responsibility. I love that because so you're right it's a, it's a different podcast in some ways but grow in some ways grassroots advocacy is how you get change that's what we've seen time and time again through the history books you're you're completely but it does need those champions the people that are willing to raise their head above the parapet and and make their case and make their position to the top table so that there's the the listening piece happens um and then it needs to be embedded within the the culture of the organization um what you've just said is really interesting because if you are within um, a recruitment business, so that's the you know that's the the majority of our listeners in this particular podcast, you may be at different places. Is there something that you think you would say, Dan, that we have a duty to do that each individual could do from a recruitment perspective that it, it helps with this whole conversation, this culture change? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things actually, regardless of whether you're you know large, mid-sized, or small, you know recruitment business i think the first obvious thing is is just making sure that um you know this agenda is on your client's agenda i mean you know clients um and why should they be you know they're not they're not experts on on edni you know their primary responsibilities is is clearly running their businesses and you know finding the best talent and the rest of it so i think the first thing that you know we could do is maybe talk to our clients about the importance of it i mean 
even I think some clients um, probably get a bit um, um, confused with, say, uh, the legal framework. And what I mean by that is, you know, we confuse words like positive action and positive discrimination. And so the ask of recruitment uh, companies from clients is often confused. And so I think one of the things that we could all do is maybe just have a bit of clarity ourselves and just, um, you know, go on a few more podcasts, Kate, actually, on but on things like, you know, the, the Equality Act and get some education on that, because I think that gives us all a bit more confidence, actually. And so that so we can advocate on what we can do and perhaps what we can't do for clients and the rest of it. So there, there are certain things that I would I would be doing, but also looking internally, I think. You know, the recruitment sector in the UK, Kate, you will have the numbers of this uh, in terms of how many there are and, uh, you know, what the kind of economic power is and all of that great stuff. But it's such a powerful collective that collectively, um, if we educate our own workforces about things like bias, about things like microaggressions, about how we want to live our values, actually, we could be like a super cool force for social change ourselves and so i think one of the messages is you know even if you're running a relatively small organization don't underestimate the power that you have in terms of contributing to you know the conversation effectively i i completely buy into that because i i see it time and time again so yes you're right the the numbers all stack up so uh, on any given day Recruitment agencies across the UK are putting one million people out on a temporary assignment in in some shape or form. That's a that's a huge cohort of the working population every single day, and you know, and the the other thing that always leaps to mind in these occasions is every twenty one seconds somebody's getting a new permanent job via a recruitment business. The lives that are being touched here around um, through the recruitment process is so important, and the pool of people that that keeps expanding too is is fast um there's different points aren't there at the minute attentions in in the jobs market that we're really uh feeling so so one i I mentioned at the top of this podcast that the um the latest um labor market statistics are showing that there's this problem we have where we've got very high levels of economic inactivity um across the uk um and if you look at the data, it breaks down into you can see that there are groups, um, young people disproportionately impacted. So um, not in education, employment and training. You have um, in still you have people with long term health conditions that are out of the jobs market. There are when you look across different sectors, you can see that the diversity isn't necessarily there. So so I can immediately see how the recruitment process becomes really important to addressing these societal problems which are actually economic problems as well um and is there something that you would say dan that recruitment businesses should be thinking about in terms of how they approach different groups where they may be looking to address the the longer consequences that we're seeing in the jobs market right now yeah, first of all, before I answer that, I've, I've logged those two numbers, Kate. So I've got I've logged the one million twenty one seconds, which I love, by the way. Uh, so that's that's just fab. Um, but I think, yeah, in terms of the, I think there are some practical things actually, and I think in some ways we've got a bit more of an opportunity. In uh, I don't know whether we're in a post COVID world, but let's call it that for now. 
but I think what's happened with COVID is we've all sh- completely shifted in terms of our way of working. So we're obviously all working, you know, much more agilely and uh, remotely and all of that kind of stuff. So that that gives recruitment um, flexibility in terms of having conversations with, you know, their clients in terms of, well, you know, what is the ask? So, you know, we all know, you know, the old, you know, days of nine to five in the office have, have long gone. <clears throat> so that that frees up a space for well, how can we be flexible to offer opportunities to, you know, to your point, you know, people with long term health uh, issues or people with disabilities or, you know, people from different social backgrounds. How does the current um, workforce structure, flexible working, agile working, the utilisation of technology give us this opportunity to provide um opportunities for groups that wouldn't normally enter the labor market because of perceived barriers and so i think we could start having conversations around what are the requirements that we're looking for you know all that basic stuff in job descriptions and person specifications which ask for either requirements or qualifications that if we look at them now and think do we really need that stuff? You know, do we really need somebody to be, you know, I don't know, based in London or do we need somebody to be traveling, you know, five days a week or, you know, do they have to have even, you know, the thing about sectors, you know, we work in a world of uh, cross knowledge sharing. Do we really have had to have experience of working in, I don't know, consulting for 10 years or can we have somebody from a different sector that can bring a different perspective in order to be innovative and the rest of it. So I think, we all need to be much more flexible in in terms of thinking about what is the role that we're trying to fill and what are the skills that we're actually looking for Uh, and i think too often and this is probably a client issue but i think too often we just go into automatic mode of well these are kind of skills that we've had previously so let's just you know take that job description and person's back and you know you know, take the dust off the shelf and just re-advertise. And I think we need to be almost in a positive way, quite radical in terms of what we're looking for, because we've got two issues going on at the same time. One is we've got uh, a lot of inactivity uh, in the in the labour market in terms of we've got a skill shortage, and yet we've got lots of stakeholders that are economically inactive. So we could fill that gap by being quite radical in terms of the ask that we're looking for and the rest of it. I mean, one of the things that I do in addition to my day job is the Lord Mayor of London uh, has something called a Power of Inclusion Network, which I chair. And we've had a campaign and and it continues um, around social mobility. And, you know, we're trying to get kids from different backgrounds into, um, you know, work and the rest of it. And there's just very, very practical things like You know, if you're from a certain background, you know, maybe you can't even afford, you know, your train fare to do like an internship or you can't even afford, you know, your your, uh, you know, lunch and things like that. And so we're working with employees at the moment, say, if you're particularly in the city of London, if you're offering internships, maybe you need to think about paid internships. I know, you know, there's lots of practical things around that in terms of, well, you know, whether we can afford paid internships or not. But the reality of life is. You know, if you're from a certain background, you can do that internship because your parents can pay for you to buy some new clothes to get to work, pay for your bus fare, pay for lunch. And if you're from Tower Hamlets, which is literally just a mile down the road, your parents probably can't do that. So I think there's some very, very practical things as well as the job description stuff to look at that I would encourage employers 
to do. And then from a recruitment perspective, I think they're the sorts of conversations that recruitment companies can can be having with, you know, their clients and the rest of it. And, you know, probably encouraging us all to be a bit braver and a bit bolder in terms of, um, you know, what we can do uh, do around that. And the final thing I'd say, Kate, is on this is, is which slightly drives me crazy sometimes is this conversation about risk because I hear it all the time and people say to me oh you know Dan it's a bit risky to have somebody from a different social background because you know they don't know the code or it's a bit risky and I just think it's kind of risky to have the same old people you know if we want to be creative and innovative the one thing that you can do to increase your level of risk is to hire people that look sound and think like you so i don't buy this notion of risk Kate. i think it's risky to do what we're doing and i think it's less risky to be innovative and creative and the uh, the rest of it what a fabulous place for us to finish up because that all leans to me towards that do you remember the the point that's always made about well what happens if i train the people and they leave it's like what happens if you don't train them and they stay? It's mm. this, it's, you've got to embrace this, this point of actually we, if, we, if we want to have the right people in the right jobs with the right skills, then we've, we've all got this duty of care. I think that's such important advice. Dan, thank you very much for your time and your contribution. If people want to find out more about Fairer Consulting, where should they go? What should they look at? Um, they should look at the website, which is fairerconsulting.com. Uh, uh, we've got lots and lots of uh, free resources, actually. You know, we do have a principle of um, sharing. So check out the website. There's lots of brilliant practical how-to guides. We've got lots of free events that we offer to clients and non-clients. So just check out the website. Lots of stuff on there. Um, and, um, yeah, just, just sort of uh, enjoy the ride with us, actually. Brilliant. Thank you. I've really learned a lot from today's conversation um, and, and thank you so much for joining us. So it's been uh, an education. Thank you for everybody who's also uh, listened along to this particular podcast. We've got lots of opportunities coming up over the coming weeks for REC members to get together. So if you're in the education sector, come to our meeting on the 27th of February. Um, Neil will be doing our usual talking recruitment webinar on the 12th of March and I'll put an early bid in now for our annual conference because we're back in person. Um, Rec Live 24 will be happening on the 25th of June 2024 so mark your diary please. And if you've enjoyed today's podcast, we have done a series that particularly think about um, the EDNI agenda. Um, so listen along to um, the episode 27 with Sarah Atkinson, Chief Executive at the Social and Mobility Foundation. Um, and Neil and Sarah have a really great conversation about why social mobility is so important and its impact on recruitment. There's episode 26 with Matthew Ragg, who is many of you know is the chief executive at Gattaca who he talks about EDNI in the STEM um, sectors and, and what they've been doing to, to drive change there and finally there was episode 28 with our own Shaz um, Ijaz who's REC's campaigns director who talks us through the REC manifesto and a big big theme in that manifesto is where are we in the labour market right now and what do we need to be doing to prepare for the future and clearly the EDNI agenda is a big strand of that thank you very much for listening thank you to Dan for your participation today and speak to you again soon 
Thank you for listening today. I hope you took away some valuable thoughts from this discussion. If you'd like to hear more, head to rec.uk.com forward slash talking recruitment or follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. Simply search Talking Recruitment to find us.